we've started this new term um, with a new series out of the book of Mark, and I've called it Getting to Know Jesus. And uh, you'll see there's a little slide that should go up picturing the city. And um, the reason that we want to do this as a, as a church is because we want to see this community become more and more missional, more and more reaching out into the community. And so I felt like Mark was a really good book to explore together and to investigate together over the next couple of months. Uh, how, how can we best get to know Jesus? Uh, what does is, what is, uh, Jesus have on his heart for us? What does the gospel in us look like? All these things that we've been talking about for a while. And so that's really the motivation in terms of why I want to explore these things with you. And I really trust that you will in your devotions, that you spend some time reading the book of Mark. It's a very simple book. It's easy to understand. And last week I started by looking at the first verse, which just says, uh, Mark introduces his theme, and he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. And we had a look at that last week, and how Mark connects that into the prophecy of the Old Testament to Isaiah and Malachi, and those that have prophesied that there would be a Messiah that comes. And then he connected it straight in with John the Baptizer, and I'd have a, like to have a look this morning at John and um, his message. I'd have like to look secondly at Jesus and why he was baptized, why he needed to be baptized, and what that looks like and what that means for us also. But just as a summary for some of you that weren't here, I'm just going to take five minutes to summarize what I said last week. I had a look and said that the Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels together, and that's because they all show us something of who Jesus is. And if you imagine three columns, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all at the same time, there's common information in all of those that show us a picture of Jesus. That's why we get a synopsis of Jesus out of those Gospels, right? That's why it's called the Synoptic Gospels. And I said to you that all of the Gospels are portraits of Jesus. They paint a picture of Jesus. We can get to know something of who Jesus is through the Gospels and the different pictures that they paint of him, but we still, by the power of the Spirit, have to get to know Jesus ourselves. I mean, if you see a picture, it represents the person, but to get to know the person, there's still more for you, right? And so really, the Gospels introduce us to Jesus. They show us something of who he is and what he's like, and then by the power of the Spirit, we get to know Jesus intimately in our lives on a daily, daily basis. And uh, I had a look also and said, well, who was Mark? And we looked at the book of Acts, and saw that uh, Mark was um, a, a man who grew up in a Christian home. His mum was a widow in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 12, you see when Peter is miraculously uh, released from jail, he goes to a house of a widow, and that's John Mark's mum. And so John Mark grew up in this Christian home, this Christian community, where people were coming in and out of their home. Uh, he was a personal friend of Peter, the apostle, which becomes important, as we discovered. And also John Mark traveled with Paul and Barnabas, and Barnabas was his uncle, and they traveled uh, together on Paul's first missionary journey. And remember when they reached Pergia, and uh, Paul wanted to go inland into the plateau, for some reason John Mark took fright, and he went home. And remember I said John Christensen, who's an early church father, wrote in the 4th century, and he said basically he thought John Mark was just missing his mum. That's why he went home. And there have been all these kind of theories as to why John went back. But because of that, Paul didn't want to travel with him again. But then we had a look and saw that there was amazing reconciliation at the end of Paul's life when he's in Rome, uh, in jail, and he writes his letters to the Colossians, and he writes to Philemon, and he writes to other people. There he says... John Mark is with me in jail. And so there's been this amazing reconciliation. We don't know how it happened, but it happened. So at the end of his life, John Mark is reconciled 
with Paul. And we also saw that um, uh, this record of Mark, the Gospel, is actually a preaching record of Peter the Apostle, and we know that also from some of the early writings in the, in the first couple of centuries, where um, it's made quite clear that Mark is a record of what Peter preached. And we know that, that um, Peter called John Mark his son, 1 Peter 5, and so there was this close personal relationship with Peter that Mark had, and he wrote down what um, Peter preached. And I ask you as, you, as you study this with us as we go forward, to look out for these characteristics as you read the Scripture and as you read um, Mark. That personal declaration right at the beginning that kind of summarizes what Mark is trying to say, where he just says, this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. And right from the beginning, Mark has this personal revelation, and he has this revelation of the divine God-made man that is with us. And so for Mark, Jesus wasn't just another guy with us. He was always God-made man. He was always God with us. And if I said to you, if you look at the language, he's always showing us how much Jesus moved people to amazement, to awe, to wonder at the miracles that he did. Not only the the disciples, but every crowd that he preached to were moved to amazement and awe that this man preached with power, he preached with authority, he wasn't like the Pharisees, etc., etc. And so I said the first thing that Mark does is he paints this picture of the divine Christ. But secondly, he paints a picture of a very human Jesus. Out of all the Gospels, Mark is the most human and I took some time to investigate some of the language that Mark, Mark uses. Jesus sighed deeply. He was moved to compassion. He was moved to anger. All these things that we had a look at last week. And um, he, he paints this picture of, uh, of Jesus as a, a very real person as well, and in a way that the, some of the other Gospels don't. And then I also said to you thirdly, that it is an eyewitness account of Jesus' life, and uh, some of the things that we looked at were this calming of the storm, where Mark is the only one who adds the detail that Jesus was asleep on the cushion uh, in the boat. There are other eyewitness things that only someone who was there would have known. Mark wasn't there, so that just confirms for us that this really is a preaching record of Peter, who was there as an eyewitness, and uh, Mark wrote all of these things down by the power of the Holy Spirit. I said to you also that there's a tempo to the language, and I said to you, look out, when you're reading the book of Mark, you'll read immediately, at once. And I said in the Greek, over 30 times, um, in the third chapter, Mark just kind of puts one sentence after the other, and he connects it with and, like a child would tell a story. He says, this happened, and that happened, and Jesus did this, then we went there, and, 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 and. It's like there's a tempo to what he's saying. He's rushing to get the story out. He's excited to tell us this amazing story of Jesus. And I said the underlying theme of Mark's reason for writing his gospel is to show us who Jesus is, number one. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the fully God, fully man, and the amazing things that he did. And then secondly, there's a challenge to all of us that is consistent through the book of Mark, which is simply this. You've heard the good news. You've heard the message of Jesus. You have seen all that Jesus taught and done. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) That's the challenge. That's through the book of Mark. And so I'd like to explore these two themes as we go forward over the next coming months. But we're going to read verse 5 to 8 today, and we're going to look at John the Baptizer, all right? John the Baptizer, he's an amazing, amazing man, and uh, cousin of Jesus, yeah? The son of Elizabeth. Remember, if you read the story, 
she, they were cousins, and uh, they knew each other from birth, uh, from, from when they were young. And it just says in verse 5, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so, I love reading about John. He's a, he's a, he's a kind of wild man in the kingdom. He's a, he's a wonderful guy just to contemplate and think about a little bit. But the, what strikes me, as soon as you read about John, you see that his ministry was powerful. You see that his ministry was effective. The, the, what he produced was that people left from Jerusalem and all over the, the community, and they came to be baptized in this dirty little river in the Jordan. So he had a powerful, effective ministry right from the, the beginning. And people not only were prepared to listen to what he had to say, they were prepared to submit to what he had to say. And he was preaching this thing of repent, the kingdom is coming, be baptized. And I want to ask this question as we look at John this morning. Why was his message so powerful? And why did he have such an impact on those that heard him? Because he had a radical impact. Uh, and I want to say to you, first of all, very simply, John lived his message. John lived his message. He wasn't just a man that spoke. There was an authority that came in his life because his message was authentic and it was seen in his life in the most amazing way. Four little things I want to say to you this morning. First, the Scriptures talks about the place where he stayed. The wilderness. The place that he stayed. Between the center of Judea and the Dead Sea is a region which is a severe desert. Who's been to the Middle East? Anyone been to Israel? Yeah, okay, so you'll, you'll know if you've been there. It's a limestone desert. The characteristics of limestone is it's a soft rock, and so when it rains in a limestone place, the, the water forms all of the, the, the rock into different shapes. And so if you go into the desert, the wilderness there in Judea, you'll see that the rocks are gnarled and they've got amazing shapes, and it's a, it's a dry, severe place. In fact, uh, in the Old Testament, this region was called Jeshimon, which means simply the devastation. That's how wild it is. In the Old Testament, they called it the place of devastation, the de devastation. And so it goes from the plateau and it goes down towards the, the Dead Sea and the cliffs are quite severe and they fall right into the Dead Sea. And so this is how we get to know John, this wild man from the desert. And it just immediately, Mark is painting a picture for us that John wasn't a city slicker. He wasn't a yuppie. He wasn't about climbing the corporate ladder. He was a wild man. He was a man who'd made space in his life to go into a desolate place of solitude where he could hear the voice of God. And that's why he comes out with this message of power. Because he's made space in his life to hear the voice of God. I want to ask you this morning, as I ask myself, do we make space in our lives just to hear the voice of God? Or things cluttering in on our lives all the time? My dear wife always tells me that my phone is getting in the way of my life. She's right, isn't she? 
There's too much Twitter, there's too much Facebook, there's too much news, there's too much stuff that clutters, so we stop hearing the voice of God. So I want to encourage you, as Jonah said, um, there's a time we're setting aside as a community just to hear the voice of God. Perhaps that frightens you, perhaps you think, that's really scary, just to come and sit for a couple of hours and do nothing, but try and hear the voice of God. I promise you this. It's not a scary thing. God always speaks, and He'll speak to you in a way that's right for you, and it might be two hours that are going to affect your life for the rest of the year in the most powerful way. Just setting some time aside to hear the voice of God. And so, He has this man, this wild man from the desert, living His message. Secondly, it talks about the clothes that He wore. He has a fashion statement for you ladies. How do you figure camel hair and leather goes together, Right? So that's all he wore. Camel hair, cloth made out of camel hair and a leather belt. And there, it's not just a, no, it's not just he's being eccentric. This is the costume, if you like. If you read the Old Testament, who else dressed like that? Do you know? Two kings. Go and read 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8. Elijah wore exactly the same garb. Uh, John is not just kind of like, it's not, he hasn't thought about, this is, this is, he's saying to them, I'm coming in the spirit of an Old Testament prophet. He was identifying with Elijah. In fact, Elijah started ministering in the same place, out of the same wilderness. There was a connection back into history that, that people would have been aware of. He comes as an Old Testament prophet. He doesn't come as like, a, you know, I like reading history. And if you read about the Senate in Rome, the, the, the senators were the great orators, the, the good speakers. And, and they had all these fancy robes and they were kind of full of political ambition and power and they were trying to step on each other to get the top of the Senate. What, jo- what John is saying, Mark is showing us, that John was just not a man like that. He was a straight up Old Testament prophet coming out of the wilderness, crying this message saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And his, his, the way he dressed showed that his life was a protest. He was a protester, John. He was protesting through his life, about the state of the contemporary society in which he found himself. And so I want to encourage you. You know, John, he was a simple man. He lived simply. And I want to encourage you as I'm speaking to myself, sometimes the luxuries of life, they kill our souls. You know that? They kill our souls, and we are robbed, and we stop to hear, stop hearing the voice of God. So I want to encourage you, find some space in your life, as I'm trying to find space in my own life that we can hear the voice of God together for this community and for what He has for us as a church. Yeah, And then it speaks thirdly of the food that He ate. And I, I don't want to dwell too long on this, but I mean, it's simple food, all right? <laughs> and uh, it says locusts and wild honey. And as, and as I've read about this um, and studied a little bit this week, it's interesting that you can interpret those words in more than one way. Um, locusts could have been locusts, and Leviticus 11.22 says that the people were free to eat locusts. They were clean, so it could have been insects. But they could have also been, you can also translate that word as, um, as carob, C-A-R-O-B, and the carob was a kind of nut, it was a bean that the poorest of the poor ate. It's like people who had nothing, they would eat carob beans. And so whether it was real locusts or carob beans that he ate is irrelevant, because what it's trying to say to us is that he was a simple man, he had a simple diet. And in the same way, honey could mean wild honey, but also, some of the poorest of the poor, they would cut the bark of particular trees, and the sap would come out, and it would be sweet sap, and they would drink that. It was like honey, poor man's honey. And so my point is, whatever it was, the, the exact, the exact um, 
meaning of those words is not precisely important because John comes, the simple man, this, uh, this Old Testament prophet figure, emerges from the wasteland and he proclaims a new message. And I want to say that there are many that have messages and many come with a new revelation, a new message. The thing that gives John's message power is that it's authentic in his own life and people can see that it's authentic. Now, it's one thing to preach, store up treasures in heaven. It's one thing to preach that if your bank account is full and you've got investments worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. It's one thing to say to everyone else, now store up treasures for yourself in heaven. When you've got nothing in your bank account and you've got no investments, and then you preach and say to people, store up treasure for yourself in heaven. There's a different authenticity. Do you hear what I'm trying to say? He lived his message. His message was who he was. And so John and his message were the same. Secondly, his message was effective. And um, why was it effective? Well, I want to say to you that I think the people knew in their heart of hearts that what John was saying was what they needed to hear. There was a deep yearning in the Jewish people. In fact, they had a saying in those days which said this, if only Israel would keep the law of God perfectly for one day, the kingdom of God would come. And so there was this longing in their hearts that the kingdom would come. And so when John came preaching this baptism of repentance, he was confronting the population with a decision that they knew in their heart of hearts they ought to make this decision. <laughs> and so he's speaking in a deep way. He's speaking to their inner conscience. And it's resonating in their conscience. And they know it's true. And it's so effective because John has a right to speak. And when the people look at his life, they can see he's got a right to speak. And it's an authentic thing. I don't know if you know this, but um, the Old Testament says that uh, there, there was a 300-year gap of the, of the prophets from the Old Testament. And then when John is introduced 300 years later, he's the first one The people say, we are now hearing the voice of God again. They've been waiting. They've been longing for the voice of God to speak into their nation. The voice of God had been silent for 300 years. And here is an authentic voice that John Mark writes down and says, John came from God. And everyone recognized that he came from God. You hear what I'm saying? There was authenticity in um, his life. I read this week um, the story of Toscanini. He was a famous violinist. And I was just reading... And uh, the story said that the other members of the orchestra, when he got on stage to perform as a soloist, it was said that the other, pe other me members of the orchestra could feel his authority flow over them as he began to play. It's an amazing thing. They could feel his authority flow over them. I want to put it to you that we can all recognize the authentic. <laughs> we can all recognize a doctor who has real skill. We can all recognize a speaker who really does know his subject. He's not fudging it. Yeah? There's an authenticity that we can all recognize, and John was an authentic um, liver out of the message that he proclaimed. And so, thirdly, his message was effective because he was a humble man. He was humble. In fact, when you look at how he describes himself, he says, I'm not even worthy to do the work of a slave. It was a slave's job to take his master's feet, to untie his sandals, and to wash his feet for him in the Old Testament. That's what a slave did. That was part of his duties as a slave. John says, I'm not even worthy to perform the duty of a common slave in a master's household. I'm not worthy to even undo the sandals of the master, Jesus. 
And so he's a man who really asks nothing for himself. But he's doing everything he can to show people Jesus. And he has forgotten himself. John has forgotten himself. I want to say, I think the world is full of people and preachers who preach a message, but really they haven't forgotten themselves. There's a a little bit of self-aggrandizement. There's a little bit of self-promotion. I'm not judging anyone, but sometimes the world can be a place like that. Isn't it? Just a little bit of, I'm getting to the top of the pile. John wasn't a man like that. He was a humble man. He had forgotten himself. He was completely yielded and completely lost in his message. And fourthly, his message was effective because he pointed to somebody else. He pointed to something beyond himself. He pointed to the Holy Spirit. He pointed to Jesus. He wasn't saying, I'm the guy. He was saying, Jesus is the one that I want you to connect with. Jesus is the one that I want you to show. He is great. He wants you to see. He is far greater than me. And I can baptize you with water that washes your body, but he who's coming after me will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and your whole life will change. Your whole soul will be washed. Your, your mind will be renewed if you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he shows us something infinitely greater and stronger than who he was. And people listened to him because he was pointing them to someone else. He was pointing them to who we all need, Jesus. And then lastly, his message was effective because he showed really that Jesus was a spiritual Messiah. Jesus was a spiritual Messiah. And the ancient people were waiting for a political Messiah. They were waiting for a, a economic um, revitalization. I want to put it to you that we still, largely, we are waiting for political Messiahs and economic Messiahs. And we really are not too interested in hearing about the fact that we are sinful and we need salvation. It's, it's exactly the same. People want Jesus to fix them up, heal them, get them a job, and be a big sugar daddy. That's what they want. People don't really want to hear that actually we are desperately in need of of rescue. And John um, shows us Jesus, and Mark records it. This is how he introduces Jesus to us. A spiritual Messiah. Not an economic fixer-upper, not a political Messiah. A spiritual Messiah rescuing us from sin. All right, so there's a little bit about John the baptizer. Now we're going to read two more verses, and I'm going to make a couple of comments, and then we're going to pray together. Uh, Verse 9. Should we just read two more verses? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we know that portion well. A very powerful portion. But it should ask us, it should cause us to ask some questions. I mean, John was preaching this baptism that said you needed to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That, was, that meant that everyone who responded to that message, they came and said, I'm sorry for my sin, and I want to be done by my, with my sin. And so John baptized them in the Jordan. Well, what does that have to do with Jesus? Because really... Christians believe that Jesus was sinless, that he was perfect. So why it's, John's baptism was irrelevant for him. He didn't need to be baptized. He did have nothing to say sorry for. He was perfect. He was sinless. So we have to ask the question, why did Jesus choose to be baptized? Because he did. He chose to submit himself to John's baptism. Well, I want to give you a number of reasons this morning that I think we should think about. 
One, first of all, it was a moment of decision for Jesus. All of us have moments of decision in our lives. What do we do with what God is calling us to do? Is now the right time? Should I wait? I feel the sense of calling on my life. I, I can't put it into words, but I know God is speaking to me. How do I handle it? And here, I put it to you that Jesus had been waiting for 30 years. He had been born. He was in Nazareth. He was a carpenter. He was a joiner. He used his hands. He worked well. He worked in his hometown, his home community for 30 years. And I put it to you that while he was working as a carpenter, he had a growing sense of his call, that God had put something on his life to do and a ministry for him. And he had to make a moment, he had to make a decision at the right time when he started moving into that ministry or when, whether he should continue to wait. And the emergence of John, the emergence of this man in the wilderness saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was the sign for Jesus that the time had come for him to make the decision that he knew he needed to make and to launch his ministry. And I put it to you for all of us, that there are those key moments in our lives where we have to decide, Jesus, am I going to follow your call for my life? Is this the right moment? And I I believe that there are some people here this morning that have been wrestling with these things. You know that God's called you. You're not quite sure of, of where it is, but you have a sense of it, and you've been waiting. And I want to say to you, if we learn to, to, um, hear the voice of God and make the right decision, we will live a life that is happy and fulfilled and doing what God's called us to do. If we miss those moments, we often will end up frustrated, feeling like our life is being wasted, discontent, and always restless. Yeah? I want to encourage you, again, (laughs) set those two hours aside and come and be here and let some people pray for you and and maybe God's going to speak to you about about making that decision. You with me? key decision that can unlock something for you. And uh, Jesus didn't drift from one thing to the other. He had a purpose. He knew exactly what God was calling to. Uh, In fact, I'll put it to you that at that moment, when he came and he was baptized, he said, this is what he was saying, I'm leaving behind the quiet, comfortable life of Nazareth, where I know everybody, and I know my community, and I actually um, can do the job of a carpenter very well. I'm leaving that behind, and I'm embracing God's will for my life. And I know, right now as I step out, I know that includes me dying for people. That's what he did in that moment. He made that radical decision. He knew that was God was calling him, and it was the moment to do what God had called him to. Secondly, it was, uh, his baptism was a moment of identification with people. We've read already, John preached, and John preached, and revival happened. That's what was happening. There was a spirit of revival. Hundreds of people were coming to get baptized. And so Jesus didn't need to go through that himself, but he was identifying with what was going on with the people. He, he was, he was uh, recognizing the spirit of revival that had been generated by, by um, uh, John, that people were moving towards God, not away from God anymore, and he identifies with that. He's identifying with that for the sake of the people, not for his own sake. Yeah? So yeah, he, he says, okay, I'll go through this, I, I'll identify with the people. And thirdly, most important, well, not most importantly, but perhaps most importantly, It was the moment that he received the Holy Spirit. Can I say to you, even Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect sinless one, needed to receive the Holy Spirit. How much more you and I, in terms of what we are called to with our lives, don't we need the Holy Spirit? 
And so this moment when he's baptized, it signals the end of John's ministry, and John in an amazing way recognizes that and is prepared to not be heard of again, and it signals the moment of Jesus' ministry. And it's a, this, this moment of baptism signals uh, Jesus' commitment to an entire new way of life. And he was embracing fully the journey that God had for him, which eventually would lead him to the cross. And it says, as soon as he's come to this point, as soon as he's baptized, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon him like a dove. It's amazing. And no, the dove is a symbol of gentleness. Always has been a symbol of gentleness. But if you read in Matthew and Luke about the preaching of John, John the baptizer, Matthew 3.17 and Luke 17, the first 13 verses, if you go and have a look, you will see that John's preaching was, was characterized with power in this sense. He spoke a radical message. He said things like, the axe is being laid to the root of the tree. He talked about consuming fire. He said a time of judgment is coming that's going to sift the whole nation. He was a man like, he was on fire. He was like, oh, in people's faces. He broke it open, and then Jesus comes, and what is characterized from the first moment before Jesus even starts to minister, what is the, character, the characteristic thing of Jesus? The Holy Spirit is poured out upon him, the gentleness of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus would come and conquer. He would entire, conquer the entire world, but he wouldn't do it by force. He would do it through love. And right from the very beginning, we see Jesus and the spirit of his ministry, the sealing of his sonship, when the Father says from heaven, this is my son. I'm well pleased with him. And I want to say to you, it's before Jesus has done one thing for God, he's already pleased with him. Completely satisfied. And so that brings me to the last point uh, from this portion. It was a moment of approval for Jesus from the Father in heaven. I want to say to you, no sane person, no wise person ever sets out on an unknown path without fully considering that it must be the right moment and the right choice at the right time. If we just go willy-nilly and into our future without really thinking about it, saying, God, is this what you have for me? We are just stupid. Jesus was not like that. Jesus had carefully considered this was the right time to do what God had called him to do, and he, he, um, he embarks on the, the journey, and the seal of approval is the voice of the Father from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son. Now, in the, in the ancient times, the Jews believed in a number of heavens. They believed in, there were a number of heavens, not just one heaven, and they believed that, Jesus, that God the Father was in the highest heaven. That's why when you read the Old Testament, it often says the highest heaven. And that, they, they, they thought that, that God was in the highest heavens, completely separated from us. And when he spoke, we could hardly even hear his voice because he was so removed from us. And so they had this expression, uh, bath call, which, which simply means the daughter of a voice. And so they believed this, that when God actually spoke, we didn't even actually hear his voice. It was like an echo of an echo, the daughter of a voice. It's like, it wasn't, we were hearing just the echo of God's voice. Yeah? And that's how they believed God spoke. And so when God spoke, they could just faintly hear his voice, and they, that's how they heard his voice. What's interesting here is when Mark writes it down, he says directly, he says, the heavens were torn open, and the voice of God spoke directly, immediately, into this uh, Jesus' life, you are my son. 
in who I'm well pleased. It wasn't an echo of an echo of an echo, like they thought God spoke to them. It was straight, boom, out of heaven, voice saying, this is my son. It's incredible. And so, it comes as a direct voice. It was an un, un, the unmistakable approval of God the Father over his son, Jesus. His life and his ministry. 